Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Over the last few years, the role of free speech in universities has been shifting, with more and more guest speakers being no-platformed, events being cancelled, and academics being hounded for some of their beliefs, the world of academia is suddenly steeped in controversy. Sometimes people on the other side may actually have compelling evidence in their favor. And even if they don't, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't give them the opportunity to tell us why they think their position is correct, and then educate them. The government wants to put an end to what it sees as cancel culture, and has proposed a raft of new laws that would allow academics, students or visiting speakers to sue universities for compensation if they feel they've been censored, no-platformed or if free speech is somehow restricted. You don't have to shut down debate. Even if it's an idea that you don't like, you can debate it, you can have your say. You may win the argument and you may not win the argument, but you have to accept that that is the forum within which ideas are debated. But many universities and students are up in arms over the new legislation. There's already lots of work going on to make sure that freedom of speech is upheld and protected. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, free speech on campus. One of their ideas is that student unions would be fined for breaches of free speech and the plans would make it a kind of a legal requirement that universities uphold free speech to a greater degree than they do already. That's Sean Griffiths, education editor at the Sunday Times. Then another idea is that they will create what's called an academic freedom czar or an academic freedom ombudsman. And this person would sit on the Office for Students board and the Office for Students is a, is a sort of a, a regulatory body for universities, and that any academics who felt that their freedom of expression had been curtailed could complain to this ombudsman, who would then investigate and could potentially fine universities if academic freedom had not been protected. So, yeah, these ideas are now being thought about, and the government is clearly keen to act. So... Uh, universities will have to make their views known to the government about whether they think these measures are necessary and whether they think they will help. Those are the key parts of the new legislation the government has put forward. But what's the reality on campuses? Is free speech being stifled? Are there some ideas that are so offensive that 
they shouldn't be discussed. Sean's charted the changes on campus for years. Academic freedom and freedom of speech is an issue that actually I've been writing about, it seems, for ages on and off, for years, literally for years. It's very, very topical at the moment in the UK, but I think I first wrote about it probably about 10 years ago now. It was a case which was breaking in Australia where there was a philosopher called Peter Singer and he had published articles about the possibility of euthanasia for babies born with disabilities. It was quite controversial. Wow. Yes. Yes. And the backlash against his arguments was huge and he received death threats. He had to have security. He later moved to America to an Ivy League university. And I remember interviewing him and him saying that he had a, uh, a panic button in his office. And I remember thinking and, and writing then about the case and thinking you should be able to debate these very difficult, very controversial issues, which are often at the cutting edge of, of thinking in a particular subject without having to have death threats or a panic button. Have you sort of seen this growing? I mean, I know there was a, a conference that was recently cancelled. Tell me a bit about that. In the past couple of years in the UK, it's become a very hot issue. And there seem to be different topics that come up over the years where people try and shut down debate. And at the moment, and for the last couple of years, one of the very hot topics has been this question of transgender issues and feminist academics in particular pushing back against some of the transgender ideas. And that has led to all kinds of very, very difficult scenarios in universities. We've had attempts to cancel speakers like Jermaine Greer at Cardiff University when she was invited to speak. Uh, she's, of course, a, fe a feminist academic. And very recently in Edinburgh, there was an open meeting arranged at Edinburgh University in June 2019 by a group of academics. The open meeting was going to be about women's sex-based rights, so it's a kind of feminist conference. And activists protested that the event would harm trans people and argued very strongly that it should be cancelled. They launched a petition calling for the event to be taken off the agenda. The suggestion was even that it would put academic colleagues who were transgender at risk and also that it contravened Edinburgh University's policies on equality and diversity. It went ahead. There was a, a, a sort of physical altercation after the conference. One of the speakers, Julie Bindell, was assaulted as she left the campus. It was all connected to that argument and that debate and that controversy. There are quite a lot of other areas that are sort of hot button issues. Noah Carl, for instance, he was a research fellow at Cambridge. He actually lost his research fellowship a few years ago after 200 academics published an open letter which accused him of racist pseudoscience. Another lecturer was recently suspended from Southampton University for likening abortion to necrophilia. Meanwhile, the right-wing writer, Peter Hitchens, had a speech cancelled at Portsmouth University after the student union said his views on LGBT issues were offensive. And the former Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, had a speech at Oxford cancelled 30 minutes before it was scheduled to take place because of her involvement in the Windrush scandal. When you're talking to these academics who have either been threatened or have seen their events being cancelled or, or have had to do events where they do feel like their physical safety is at risk, what are they saying to you? What is it like working like that now? I think that's a measure of how scared they are. 
They have to spend ages just trying to set up these events, organising security, persuading the university and working with the university to make sure the events are safe, persuading speakers to come. It's, it's not just that which bites into their research time. It's also that sense that they may end up working in a sort of taboo area where you can't get research grants and, you know, you can't get published. And then where is your career going? And should one carry on working in this field at all? You cited there a case of other academics saying they thought this was pseudoscience. Is there a place for peer review? I think if academics could just publish their research in a journal and have it peer reviewed and have it argued about within Mm. research journals and in conferences and in the ways that academics have always uh, debated their ideas and come to new conclusions. I think all the academics would be very happy. But what is happening at the moment is that academics working in some of these fields, like climate change, like colonialism, like Brexit, many issues actually, they're not able, they're saying, to have their papers published sometimes. They're not able to hold the conferences because they're being shut down. And so they're not able to advance their arguments in the ways that academics would expect to be able to advance their arguments. And that's why I think this debate about academic freedom is so important, because if we can't have these debates on campuses, then where can we have them? And you've been talking to an academic who almost lost his job over just a, a Twitter thread. Tell me about that. This is a professor called Eric Kaufman. He's the professor of politics at Birkbeck College. He wrote a book... Uh, a few years ago called White Shift, Populism, Immigration and the Future of White Majorities. And that turned out to be quite a controversial book. One of the things that happened was he went to debate that book at the University of Bristol in the sociology department there. And that was a difficult conference. There were protests about him coming to speak. He did manage to speak. I think a third of the audience at one point got up and left. But, you know, he managed to, to have his say. But what happened after that was that he liked a tweet. In fact, he retweeted a tweet. And this is another thing that's happening a lot at the moment. Students and activists are following academics on social media and they're watching very carefully what they are putting out on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. And anything that they object to, they think is, you know, might breach equality or diversity rules, they pounce on. And this happened to Eric. He retweeted a tweet that somebody had put up And he was very quickly complained about to his university. There was a formal complaint and he had to defend the fact that he had retweeted this tweet. Basically, someone had retweeted a a Heather McDonald piece from the LA Times critical of affirmative action, which I liked. That's Eric Kaufman speaking to Sean. Uh, It was part of a thread which I hadn't read, so it was kind of a 10-part thread, and at the bottom the guy was talking about uh, race and IQ in this sort of debate, right? And, and then there's so this big storm that if I... And, of course, each tweet you can like or not. I only yeah. really like the first yeah. Yeah. the tweet in the thread, not number seven or whatever yeah. it was. Yeah. And then when I found out, I just deleted it or unliked it. Yeah. Somebody had, meanwhile, done the screenshot thing and got the Twitter mob going and right. Right. put in the complaint. He got hauled through this disciplinary process, and... He said that it was it was very difficult. He he had written this book, you know, the students had said the book was racist. Obviously, it's it's not a racist book. It's academic work. Um, and he said that it was frightening going through the academic process. It kept going higher and higher and higher up the university. And he was worried 
he's got tenure, so I don't think he ever thought he was going to lose his job. But I think that he was also head of department. And I think that that position was in jeopardy. In the end, he says, what it makes you think is, whoa, that was really difficult. And Mm. you start to self-censor. You start to think, do I want to carry on working on exactly this stuff? Uh, Because it's so contentious and so difficult. But what some of the academics say to me is they're finding it difficult to get research grants as well uh, if they want to work on on these subjects. So, yeah, it's tricky. And that's why I think these proposals that have come in from the government have been welcomed by some academics, not by all. I mean, many universities say they're not needed and that they do a very good job of defending academic freedom. But some academics really feel they do need these proposals that have now come forward from the government to protect academic freedom on campus. I know you've spoken to some academics who say that some of their research has actually been shut down because of controversy. Tell me about that. For instance, there's a research student called James Caspian at Bath Spa University, and he wanted to study cases of people who had had surgery to reverse gender reassignment and he wanted to do his master's dissertation on this and he was told by the university ethics committee that they weren't willing to give approval uh, for this rather controversial dissertation subject. He's now launched legal action against Bath Spa University and he's taken the case to the European Court of Human Rights and he's arguing that his freedom to pursue legitimate academic research is being breached and they're waiting for, you know, a ruling from the European courts as to whether they will take that case and and consider it. With all of these examples, whether it's actually academic research being stopped, which seems remarkable, or whether it's sort of debate being muted on campus by campaigns and controversy, is this a change in culture? Or, you know, was it ever thus? Has Has something new happened here? I think maybe what's new is the internet and social media and so much of this controversy and attempts to silence debate is happening on social media and little things get whipped up into big things very, very quickly and the debate seems to have become much, much more fierce as a result of of academics getting onto social media and and social media being a platform for them to try and discuss their ideas and, and, and shutting down of ideas is happening a lot in that space. But I think it's always happened. There've always been debates that have been deemed so controversial or topics that have been deemed so taboo on university campuses that somebody will try and close them down and say that they're not proper. So I just think going back, that certainly for a long time it's been happening. It's just it seems to be more ferocious now since the advent of the internet. Do you think, can you sort of, have you spoken to, to students too? I mean, can you sort of see it from their point of view about the idea that they, you know, if, if they think there are outdated views or sort of deeply offensive views that they don't, think should be put forward as legitimate academic research, that, that, that perhaps it's part of the debate that they argue against them. Yes, so I've spoke to the, to the Vice President of, of the National Union of Students, who thinks that freedom of speech is already protected at universities, that student unions you know, don't particularly try and cancel speakers or silence debate. I understand that people might feel apprehensive to speak about 
views that they might feel was unpopular, but I, I really feel that universities and student unions have been really committed to making sure that free speech is, is promoted and protected and robust measures are in place to make sure that that happens. That's Hilary Gierbia-Babio, the vice president of the NUS, speaking to Sean. So Hilary said very clearly that... It, it's within students' rights to decide, well, actually, we don't want this speaker. We know you've been invited, but we've changed our minds and we don't want you in our student union. It's a very different thing to say a speaker has been disinvited um, than it is to say that a speaker has been stopped from being able to exercise their right to freedom of speech. And I think it's important that nobody has a fundamental right to a platform, but everybody has a right to exercise their freedom of speech. And so the discourse that is confusing um, the ability for people to, to take up platforms from a sense of entitlement as opposed to a sense of being invited, which is within students' rights and student groups' rights to be able to invite and disinvite speakers as they so wish. And she says we have laws which make it illegal to incite violence, incite hatred, and those laws, those existing laws are enough. We don't need these new proposals that the government is now consulting on. Freedom of speech must also go hand in hand with um, people having the right to protest peacefully more in just a moment. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day. Subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times today and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Campuses are supposed to be a hive of ideas, a forum for open and robust debate, and an opportunity for students to meet ideas they may otherwise never encounter. And that's how people develop. So what impact is cancel culture having on modern campuses? My name is Stephen Sisi. I'm a professor of psychology at Cornell University in New York. In 2018, Stephen co-authored an academic paper looking at free speech, how it impacts students, and what can be done to ensure debate remains a part of university life. 
even though a lot of the people who were doing the shutting down were friends of mine or people of the same socio-political perspective that I have. Nevertheless, I felt that all viewpoints should be allowed to be expressed and then confront it and rebut it in debate. But that was increasingly not being permitted. And Wendy Williams, who was the co-author, and I both became alarmed at this. And we were reading polls showing that Americans favored banning unpleasant speech rather than having it debated. So we felt that the time was right to take a stand against this. It's really interesting that you say many of the people doing the shutting down were people of your own socio-political persuasion, you know, people who you probably agreed with in many respects, but you didn't think they should be shutting down debate. It's not that Wendy Williams and I disagree with the positions behind the people opposed. It's that we feel as though the people who harbor these views should be permitted to give the evidence favoring their viewpoint. And then they should be subjected to debate and refutation, of course. But it should all be evidence-based. It all should be permitted. And increasingly, it's not being permitted, as roughly half of Americans with college backgrounds would not permit a speaker coming on campus who's going to talk about sex differences and spatial ability, for example. Wow. Were you shocked by that? You have a long and distinguished career in academia. You've been hanging around universities for, a, for quite a while now. Nice way to put it. I just turned 70, so I've been hanging around for 50 years. But so you know this world well. Does this feel new? Well, yes and no. When I was a college student back in the late 1960s, early 1970s, we had a regular routine of protests on campuses. Back then, it was about mm. the incursion into Vietnam and Cambodia by the Americans. It was for racial justice and so on. And the parties that were squashing that kind of free speech were conservative administrators. They were older white male administrators who were not happy with those of us who were protesting Everything has flipped 180, and so now the people doing the squashing are liberal progressives and they're squashing conservatives. Are people losing their jobs over this? Are they losing research grants? What's happening? People of one socio-political perspective, namely conservatives, have a more difficult time getting their research funded, getting invited to symposia, and getting hired by university departments than people in the dominant socio-political perspective, which are progressive liberals. There have been a number of surveys that look at the makeup of the academy. And these are mainly US and Canadian surveys. They probably apply in the UK as well, where roughly 85 to 90% of American faculty are liberal progressives. And frankly, I share those socio-political views. That's sort of my moral tribe as well. But what <laughs> bothers me is that my squad has become so intolerant of the conservative point of view that they don't permit it on campuses. It's not just those who are being called out who are affected. Stephen says it has a knock-on effect throughout academia. There's an online magazine called Inside Higher Education which a lot of us read. And it frequently will have stories about someone being fired for their 
political stance for being a Holocaust denier or using the N-word or saying something supportive of Donald Trump or something like this, it's probably a really infinitesimally tiny fraction of American academics that would be punished for those kind of views. But when you read about anyone being punished, I, I think it has a multiplicative effect. You read about it and you imagine it could happen to you. So therefore, what conservative academics say increasingly is they self-censor. They're afraid, really? not necessarily of being fired, but of being punished socially, being ostracized, not being appointed to certain committees or given certain awards that they feel competitive for. If it gets out that, for example, they voted for Donald Trump. Yeah. There was a UK survey just in the past year of students. And I'm trying to think if it was done by the National Union of Students or not, but it was quite alarming. It was a very high percentage of British uni students that said that they were self-censoring out of fear of being ridiculed if their more conservative viewpoints were aired. And I believe in the US it's the same. Is there an argument that perhaps over time, you know, cultural values change, the Overton window, the things that we consider acceptable to be said change? I mean, should, should academia reflect that? I think that someone who's a Holocaust denier or someone who is a racist or any other bad thing that you can imagine, I would say to that person, if you can defend your viewpoint, I'd like to see your evidence. And then I wouldn't hesitate to rebut it, challenge it. That's what a university should be, rather than to say, we have predetermined and the norms have followed us that these issues have been decidedly settled and there is no longer any intellectual merit in hearing the evidence from the other side. I don't believe that we have gotten to that point where there's no evidence from the other side that we should consider. Not that I would personally be persuaded by it, but nevertheless, I wouldn't try to uh, quash it. I would say, I wanna hear why you think there was no Holocaust and then take them apart and let other people listen to the counterpoint and make their minds up. And again, Stephen, just, just to play devil's advocate, I don't know if this is the same in America, but certainly in Britain, I think most people would sort of acknowledge that there is something specific about academia as a forum, which for years now has rewarded outlandish opinions. Yeah, I, there certainly are academics that fit your description with the sort of outrageous kind of positions. But I think they're on both sides. I, I don't think they align with the free speech uh, argument. You can certainly find progressives that say absolutely crazy things, and you can certainly find conservatives that say absolutely crazy things. And, you know, the fact is, on a funding committee, it only takes one or two people to torpedo someone's grant application. It only takes one or two people on a faculty personnel committee to torpedo someone's appointment. 
and so on. So when people in academia are given different vignettes about you're on a research funding committee, and if you know someone who's applied for uh, grant money is conservative, would you discriminate against them in awarding grants? And, and then they flip it over on the other side and they say someone who is uh, progressive, liberal is applying for grant funding, would you discriminate against them? And what these surveys show is that about 32 to 34% of American academics admit, this is really quite alarming, but they admit they would discriminate against funding someone of the opposite socio-political perspective. They would discriminate against inviting someone to a symposium who was of the opposite political perspective. And they would discriminate against hiring someone of the opposite socio-political perspective over someone who was identically qualified. So when you take an, a group of people who are, say, 85% on one side, and you say that they're willing to discriminate against colleagues on the other side, colleagues on the other side are going to have a very difficult time because they're in a, such a tiny minority. And that's relatively new in the academy. That's all happened in the last four decades or so. And again, I'm not saying that it doesn't work both ways because the surveys indicate it does work both ways. Conservatives are just as biased against progressives, but they're such a small fraction of the cognitive elite that the problem really goes in the other direction. Do, do you worry that that sort of skews the whole process of peer review, for example? I worry all the time that it skews peer review. And my colleagues and I have written about this and given examples of how it skews peer review. For example, let's take a really absurd one. You send scientists a study saying, this is a study of the validity of astrology or something that everyone in the academy feels is bogus. So you send them this study and it has an impeccable methodology, all the appropriate control groups and safe conditions and et cetera. And it has state-of-the-art statistical analysis and it concludes unsurprisingly that there's no validity to astrology. And the scientist, you know, will write it up and they'll say, you know, the methodology was excellent. The statistics were state of the art. It's really an excellent study. I'm not sure we need to publish it because we already knew this, but it's a really well-conducted, well-designed study. Fine. Take the identical study, same methodology, same statistical analysis. The only difference is you change the statistical sign in the results so that astrology is valid. And all of a sudden, the scientists who are assigned to that paper say, this is very shoddy, it's poorly done, it, it doesn't merit publication, etc." And they rate the methodology worse, they rate the statistical analysis worse, and so on. So that's a rather exaggerated example of what I think happens quite often around the edges, and that is, People come from a certain socio-political orientation, and when they're asked to evaluate, whether it's journal submissions, grant applications, applications for faculty positions, they, they bring that socio-political lens to the task, and they have very selective perception. So they may look at the very same set of facts that someone on the other side would look at, but they see something very different. So yes, I think that this is 
damaging to peer review. It really undermines its objectivity. So tell me, Stephen, in, in your paper, you came up with recommendations. Tell us a few of your ideas. So we suggested a number of things. Most college students, their first week, are put through a set of training modules. For example, there's a, a module called Alcohol EDU to talk about drinking sensibly. They're also given a sexual harassment module. They're given a plagiarism module and so on. And these are all really good things. They're, they're really helpful to start a student's university career. We suggested you could add another one to that, and that's on free speech, where the module educates students about the need to allow both sides to have a voice in the argument, not to agree with the other side necessarily, but allow them to present their evidence. This is an historic characteristic of a university that allows both sides to have their say. We also suggested a number of other things, such as a regular feature on college campuses of respectful debates, where if you have a speaker that is going to be talking about a controversial topic, build right into it, often on the same stage, the same day, that the other side can do counterpoint immediately following. So you, you have a bit of balance in built? Yes, encourage the give and take and the balance. And uh, we were suggesting that these be brought into a curriculum. So on anything that's contentious, invite the best people on both sides and educate students that you allow viewpoints that you may find odious to be expressed and then rebut it. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, education editor at the Sunday Times, Sean Griffiths, and Stephen Sisi, a professor of psychology at Cornell University. You can read more of Sean's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producer today was Chris Hemmings. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Palama Kaufman. If there's a story that you'd like us to look into, any ideas for future episodes, or if you have any thoughts on what you've just heard, then please do send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.